When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Conspiracy Normal. You'll hear me say that again here in just a little bit. But we just wanted to come up and say that tickets are available for a Strange Realities Conference 2021 happening here in Nashville and online October 15th, 16th through 17th. Hybrid, just like your alien children. That's right. Hybrid, just like your alien children. Maybe Joshua Cutchin will talk about that at Strange Realities Conference. And... Tickets right now I have listed on Eventbrite. Uh, we will also have that. We will have that link um, posted up to uh, this episode, as we will have for every episode from now until October. But uh, the tickets are $70 if you are coming to Nashville and $30 if you are viewing it online. Also, uh, we are about to have P.D. Newman on this episode, episode 361. I think that's right. And uh, he's going to be there with us in Nashville, planning on it. Yeah, so we got a great show coming up here with P.D. Newman about his new book, uh, Angels in the Vermilion. Mm -hmm. All right, guys, uh, we're, we're going to go to the interview, but stay tuned. In our outro, we're gonna we are going to have another announcement about Strange Realities Conference. <laughs> Adam and Surfiel is in cyberspace and right across from me. I don't know how exactly that works, but uh, but it is that's what it is. So it's called bilocation. Yes, it is. It's called bilocation. So uh, guys, we have with us uh, one of our favorite guests. When did we have PD Newman on last? Was it 2019? I think it was 19. Okay. So it's starting to all kind of just like meld together. So I was trying to figure if it was not, it was 18 or 19. And we talked about, uh, your book, Alchemically Stoned. Uh, welcome, uh, PD Newman back to Conspiracy Normal for the second go around. Uh, we're going to talk about your book, Angels in Vermilion. And this is called the philosophy, the subtitle, the philosopher's stone from D to DMT. So we're going to talk about uh, more correlations between Freemasonry and the possible use of uh, hallucinogens and entheogens. So let's dig into this. There's a lot here. <laughs> a lot to talk about. So like I said before, this is kind of a continuation of Alchemically Stoned. And in that book, you can talk about all these different... Um, plants that show up in the various like esoteric and like mystery school traditions and later show up in Freemasonic imagery as well. 
And one of those is the Acacia plant. And in this book, uh, you are primarily focused on the Acacia plant. So this is kind of like a um, continuation of Alchemically Stoned, but kind of like um, expounding on it. Well, the the new book doesn't just focus on the acacia, but uh, because of the evidence that we have to prove its use within an entheogenic context, it becomes the primary focus, especially in the first book. Um, But in the the new book, um, let me back up a little bit. In the first book, we were able to demonstrate that DMT was being used via a psychoactive species of acacia within Masonic ritual, but we were unable to arrive at a conclusion as to how that came to be. How did it get in Masonic ritual? Uh, was this a case of Cagliostro appropriating a symbol that was already there uh, because of his knowledge of it being psychoactive? Um, or was it put there intentionally because it's psychoactivity? You know, this was still a big uh, open-ended question with the first book. And um, with the new book, what I've done and what I realized I had to do was to stake, take a, a step back from Masonic lodges and sort of look at the problem within an alchemical context instead of a strictly Masonic context, because what we're seeing in Masonry is alchemists or excuse me are alchemists using it in this way so once i started uh going back and working my way through the european alchemical texts that's when i realized that um all of this stuff this particular line of transmission had to do with what elizabethan alchemists dr john d and sir edward kelly were doing with their uh uh, angelic actions is what they call them, which is how they created what's known as the Enochian system of magic. So to answer your question, why focus on acacia? Mainly because that's where the evidence is. Um, but once we get into the uh, alchemical territory, we realize that the problem is, uh, is much larger than that. And through this uh, Elizabethan alchemy influence is where this influence into Freemasonry really comes, where they, where they kind of codify it in Cagliostro as well. This is like a, a alchemical influence. Mm-hmm. So you don't see uh, um, Acacia referenced by name in Dee and Kelly's work, but you see references to drugs in the diaries. Yeah. You see one point where the angels are telling them, you know, you can't go forward with this, ritual you don't have enough drugs to finish it and he says well i might be out of those drugs but i have these ointments they should work which i think is probably a reference to flying ointments which is ointments that contain belladonna and mandrake other hallucinogenic compounds but um so in in addition to that there's been several commentators and uh, authors to discuss what key what Dee and Kelly were doing in terms of drugs and draw those connections. One good example is Gustav Mayrink, um, who wrote uh, uh, The Angel in the Window, Angel in the East Window. I can't remember the exact title, um, but he was a famous um, student of 
different a group of uh, German Rosicrucians, people who are styling themselves Rosicrucians. But he wrote about these this red powder that Kelly was in in possession of being a drug. And in his case, he claimed it was an incense that they were burning. <clears throat> but my my argument is it doesn't matter if it was a drug or wasn't a drug because the important thing is Elias Ashmole, who was Dee's biographer, thought it was a drug. Uh, he had been investigating Dee's diaries. He had come into possession of Dee's papers in addition to being his biographer and had been reading about these angelic actions, communications with these angels, uh, and immediately tied it to um, he being the scientifically minded person that he was, immediately tied it to Edward Kelly's powder. Um, because the, as the story goes, Kelly was in possession of this red powder um, and a manuscript he couldn't read, this alchemical manuscript known as the Book of Dunstan. And he couldn't decipher it. And he th thought that it had instructions on how to make more of this red powder. So he seeks out D, to, who already had a, uh, um, a reputation of being a, a accomplished alchemist. He seeks out D to try and get him to uh, decipher this for him. Well, D is already looking for a scryer who can help him accomplish his goal, which is to communicate with angels for the purpose of essentially spying on other governments. Uh, and Kelly is immediately amazing at this. That completely dazzles D with his abilities to see and communicate with angels. <clears throat> and anybody who's familiar with DMT should already be thinking, well, you know, one of the most common effects of DMT intoxication, as Dr. Rick Strassman pointed out in his book, is encounters with what are described as transdimensional entities or right. angels or aliens or you know, any number of weird kind of fairy descriptions. But uh, so he's seeing angels. <clears throat> and Ashmole is intensely interested in this and wants to get get his hands on some of this powder because he's got the papers on how to do the rituals now he just needs the powder to finish it so he brings this to the attention of robert boyle another founder of the royal society who is a, he was a, elected as a president of the royal society even though he turned the position down um, several years after the formation but he comes to boyle with this claim of a red powder that allows you to talk to angels and Boyle himself was already investigating the same thing via this alchemist named Wenzel Saylor okay. who had okay. come in possession of this red powder himself. And it turns out through this letter that a man named St. George Ash sent to Boyle, um, sent to the Royal Society to Boyle care of the Royal Society, telling him that this powder that Wenzel sailor possessed came from none other than edward kelly so 
Ashmole and Boyle are both in search of powders from different people who it turns out ultimately came from the same person. And Boyle wrote a, a, a paper about this. It was a published paper about, you know, how, how could there be a, uh, a corporal substance, a physical substance that somehow causes communication or visual perception, communication with or visual perception of an incorporal entity. He says it doesn't make sense. Why would there be angels hovering about this substance? Um, so he he's doesn't understand it, but he immediately under, understands that it must be a drug. <clears throat> now, at this point, he issues this document that's now known as Boyle's Wish List, a document that was put on display by the, by the Royal Society in 2010. And it's a list of things he wants to acquire for the Royal Society to study. And every single one of them have to do with drugs, virtually every one of them. He talks about, he wants to acquire uh, the fungus mentioned by the, a French author. We don't know which French author, but Chris Bennett speculates it's probably Rabelais who talks about um, agaric mushrooms in an entheogenic, what appears to be an entheogenic context. Um, they mention, Boyle mentions that he wants to acquire the Egyptian electuaries, which again, Bennett speculates is probably hashish electuaries like Dawa Mesk and Majun, um, probably the oldest known edibles we have, uh, cannabis edibles. And then he even says he looks, he wants drugs that cause pleasing dreams and epileptic fits and uh, superhuman strength, all of these things that are clearly indicative of he's trying to find a drug that will get him to communicate with angels. That'll make this happen for him. Yeah. Much like, much like D did, right? This is the idea like communication with like the, as D called them, the Enochian angels. The Enochian, that's right. Based on um, uh, the biblical Enoch. Right. Uh, who allegedly, you know, walked with deity and then was not, was taken up <laughs> with the angels or with God. But uh, so, yeah, the, the Royal Society, because of their suspicion that what Kelly had was a drug, were very interested in psychedelics. And it was from this background that John Theophilus de Sagulier, the third grandmaster of the Premier Grand Lodge in London, came from when he took his position as Grand Master. He was research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton in the Royal Society. So part of this group of men investigating psychedelics, another one was Robert Hooke, who was um, curator of experiments at, in the Royal Society. Uh, around the same time, he puts together two separate lectures on the effects of hashish, talks about how it gives you makes you exceedingly hungry and makes you fall asleep and, you know, describing its effects. So they're intensely interested in psychedelics. And it's this guy, Desagulier, who we now know through the research of Dr. David Harrison, that he's the one who put the acacia into the Masonic ritual. Now I speculate that he was the one responsible for it in my first book, but, but, I couldn't do any more than speculate without knowing 
Mm-hmm. I didn't know at the time about Boyle's wish list, you know, didn't know that he had an active interest in psychedelics. So uh, it was he who inserted the acacia symbol into Freemasonry. So when we, get, when we go back to that initial question that we were faced with at the end of the first book, how did this come to be? Did Cagliostro appropriate a symbol and make it entheogenic? No, it appears that this entheogenic bent of the fraternity was there within a decade of its inception. Uh, Pretty fascinating to me. It completely rewrites the history of the fraternity as we know it. Right. So just the idea that, you know, they were looking into this drugs and the Royal Society. I mean, this is something that you're probably not going to hear in like mainstream history. I mean, the Royal Society is, I mean, it's pretty damn key to, you know, the enlightenment (laughs) in and of itself. I mean, you mentioned Isaac Newton, but uh, they were, you know, they were kind of just like Newton was, they were kind of the last kind of like, you know, old school alchemists or magicians, but they, and they were also the first scientists. So they were kind of like on that, 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 that cutting edge between science and and magic. Um, But yeah, you're not going to, you're not going to hear any of this stuff. Um, that they would have been into looking at these drugs, even if it was like for even like scientific experiments. Right. It's uh, it's been basically whitewashed at, at this point, but uh, you know, from a Masonic perspective, but from the Royal Society perspective, I mean, from that angle, they did put the document on display in 2010. They're proud of it, you know, so they, mm-hmm. right. it seems to me that at this point, they, they grasp the heritage. Um, but as far as Masonry goes, uh, you know, Freemasonry in its history has been wrapped up with accusations of being involved with things like the French Revolution and uh, revolutionary ideas in general. Mm-hmm just surround Freemasonry. So I think the fraternity this day and age is really invested in, and it's a charge we're even given in Mississippi where we're told, you know, to basically follow the laws of the land mm-hmm. that uh, you're not to be this kind of revolutionary figure, but, but uh, they certainly were. And the, yeah. the, the the use of entheogens like this. Um, I'd hate to call it revolution, that revolutionary at the time, because, you know, I don't know how it's hard to really put that in perspective. In, in my new book, Jamie Paul Lamb, he wrote the, uh, the forward for it. And he talks about, you know, how at the, this, at this time, when this took place, there really was no war on drugs and right. th- their concept right. of, of these experiences would have been very much um, discussed in terms of uh, Enoch is a great example mm-hmm. of visions of uh, um, Ezekiel and John of Patmos. This would have been apocalyptic type stuff for these guys, not, hey, let's go trip this weekend. And right. they wouldn't have seen it as hedonistic at all. No, I don't think so. I don't. I don't think so at all. And a good example is um, Melissino, who was just just like Cagliostro was using the acacia in an entheogenic context in his versions of Masonic rituals. The seventh and final degree, where he has the candidate actually taking the the substance 
he insists that it take place not in a lodge, but in a parish. It has to take place in a church, which is a clear indication of the spiritual nature for him, how he perceived. Yeah, it's like it's like using it as a, using it as a sacrament, basically. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because I mean, there is that there is that speculation that you know Rick Strassman. You mentioned him earlier. I mean, I know that he's. He has talked about some of the, and you may have mentioned this in the last book, I don't really remember, but he has a whole book about the Old Testament prophets and the idea that they may have been taking some kind of DMT or some kind of something similar. Um, this this actually, funnily enough, shows up in the, the, the movie Noah, where, you know, Anthony Hopkins plays Methuselah and he gives Noah this paste that he, that he like, drinks and... <laughs> You know, he goes on this drug trip, and that's how he gets his vision from God, which I thought was very interesting in a supposedly biblical movie, but that's kind of an unconventional biblical film. But, um, yeah, uh, I don't, you know, I don't see that, you know, they would see it any different than any other, than any other kind of means to, you know, communicate with the divine, really. They wouldn't have said this is a drug. It would have been mind-blowing, I think. It would have been completely novel. Uh, and it's hard for, for me to put that into perspective. I, I just yeah. have such a difficult time being able to f- approach it in that way. I mean, the experience of DMT is one thing. It, it, it in itself is revelatory. But to try and understand how it would have been perceived by a layman being given this stuff in an initiatory context without any frame of reference for it other than Bible stories. It's hard to imagine how that would have been perceived. Yeah. And uh, you, you look at this in the book, there's one vision that you, uh, it's towards the end of the book that you describe and it's basically kind of like a psychedelic drug trip. I mean, it's, um, it's a it's it's a really kind of like a dmt kind of experience um so to kind of back up a little bit the acacia plant basically uh you can derive dmt from that some of them so there are some thousand species of acacia and roughly a hundred of them are known to contain some form of dmt it might be NNDMT, it might be 5-MeO-DMT, it might be the uh, bufotinine substance, which I'm still not completely clear on uh, what that is. I know it's present in anadenanthera colubrina or peregrina, which is what they make Yopo snuff mm-hmm. from. And uh, interestingly enough, that's what uh, you may already know, but the first person to to document Yopo use was Christopher Columbus when he sailed through South America. So his documentation, that document was, is known to have also been in possession of the Royal Society. So they would have been reading about Christopher Columbus talking about Yopo. And at the time, even though it comes from an Adenanthera tree, Anadenanthera is virtually indistinguishable from acacia. It's got the exact same bipinnate compound leaf structure. I can't distinguish them. They look the same to me. Um, and I think they would have looked the same to uh, members of the Royal Society too. Right. 
you also have this concept of the philosopher's stone, which is um, a huge concept in alchemy. I mean, obviously this has kind of been popularized by like the Harry Potter series or whatever, but um, you know, you speculate in, I, b- I believe in the previous book and in this book that really what's going on in alchemy um all that stuff is just like code word for some kind of entheogen is that correct all of it not all of it there there is no one unified unbroken chain of alchemy through european and previous there is none even in just if we just isolate european alchemy there mm-hmm. is many alchemical um schools as there are practitioners because basically each of them were left to their own devices to try and determine how to make sense of the recipes in many of these manuscripts. And you might find two alchemists who arrive at completely different solutions that both satisfy the requirements in the document. So it's not as simple as saying this is what alchemy was, but it's certainly that there was an alchemical tradition that was very much interpreting uh, alchemical language in this way. The, the use of the, 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 the philosopher's stone, that kind of language starts with a guy named Zosimos of Panopolis, who is a Gnostic um, Egyptian alchemist priest. He was in charge of uh, statuaries, dying statues for um, temples and ritual purposes. And this is really significant in Egyptian religion because statues similar to in Neoplatonism, statues served as what they called suntamatar, symbola, tokens or symbols that because of their likeness to these deities, they were able to capture these deities. So if you think about the deity itself as being like the sun, and its overflow of energy being like those sun rays, then the statue, and I and Porphyry even describes it this way, the statue becomes like a mirror that can capture that essence. The more like, like that essence it is, the more it's able to capture it. And what determines likeness is certain cult images for these deities, colors, certain geometric shapes in certain cases, animals, certain stones, um, which you see called correspondences in occult mm-hmm. traditions like the Golden Dawn um, or what Jacob Burma called signatures. Um, but uh, so Zosimos, he was very much concerned with being able to dye metals specific colors making them fit receptacles for these divine energies. And this was a a highly guarded secret because it made them receptacles for these divine energies. So the knowledge of how to dye metals is primarily what alchemy originally concerned. Um, So that's where you get this misreading of those early manuscripts as transmuting metals. They're changing colors to other to maybe look like another metal, but they're not changing and becoming different metal. And that's the real difference. 
and the the means by which this 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 was affected and changed was this substance called the philosopher's stone. By the time you get to European alchemy, the philosopher's stone has become this myth, mythical substance that, through alchemy, is produced. That then, as a stone, can transmute base metals into gold, and as an elixir, can cause you to be immortal. Um, these ideas, again, are appropriated from this metallurgy terminology. But by the time we get to Europe, especially after Paracelsus comes along and with his uh, plant Spigeria, and previous to him, there was Raymond Lully who had rediscovered alcohol distillation. So with alcohol and plants, plant Spigeria, we now have the technology to extract essences from plants. Once they start playing around with plants, this is called the, white, the wet path of alchemy versus the dry path, work with metals and minerals. Once they start playing around with plants, they realize that you can make a stone from a plant. So in European alchemy that was primarily concerned with, even though they still were concerned with transmuting base metals into gold, in most cases, they still thought that the source for the philosopher's stone, the, what they called the prima materia, the first matter, what you had to get to make the stone from or extract it out of, they thought that substance was still found in the plant kingdom. So they were messing with plants to find the stone to change metals. Now, of course, the transmutation of metals, once that was realized to be a, a farce, Mm-hmm. entered the realm of metaphor so that we have and and that's really not even true either because there's evidence at the early dates with Sosimos that these metaphors were still in place that 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 base consciousness or base man can be transmuted into mm-hmm. something enlightened or illuminated so it enters the realm of metaphor so you, now you've got the idea that a stone can come from a plant that then can somehow enlighten you. Now we're really in drug territory, you know, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Then it, it did. It becomes real obvious, right? It's just, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we're seeing here. It's a slow transition. And by the time we get to people like Cagliostro, very um, able alchemist, we have a, a, a a tradition set in place where the acacia is being identified as the prima materia, the first matter of alchemy. From this prima materia, they're extracting a stone, that's DMT. With this stone, they're they're then able to transmute base metals into higher metals or initiate people. Uh, So we're seeing a, a very organic development, but by no means one tradition that's unbroken continuous and and it's real tempting to look at it that way because you you know you start to think well the acacia was important in egypt how do we know that that wasn't in play it may have been but we don't have evidence that can we can point our finger at and get anywhere with it you know and the philosopher's stone then in this particular tradition you think is very likely to be this red powder that you keep finding everywhere. So when, 
if you look in the the best line of like the lineal transmission that's given that this imagined lineal transmission comes from Falconelli, the imagined uh, fictional alchemist Falconelli, his second book, Dwelling of the Philosophers, he gives a list of every alchemist who has claimed to have handled, used, or seen the Philosopher's Stone. And it begins with Kelly. Kelly is the first one who has it. And the reason it begins with Kelly is because Kelly is the one who claimed to have found it in the grave of this uh, this bishop who actually was Dunstan of Canterbury, um, which is why the manuscript was labeled Book of Dunstan. But so it begins with Kelly. But what you realize real fast reading after reading through it is that the characteristic factor of all of them, the the unifying characteristic is this red, brown, orange color, the, the vermilion, crimson, the same language shows up, tawny, ruddy. And this is uh, also significant because when Christopher Columbus is describing the Yopo. He describes it as a cinnamon colored powder. So again, we're back in the territory of this brown red powder. And, and as an A-side, when the explorer A. Humboldt identified the tree from which the natives were making this cinnamon colored powder, he didn't identify it as anadinanthera. He identified it as acacia neopo. So this tree that they're already interested and knew about was being identified, actively identified as an acacia. Um, What's interesting is that like, especially when um, alchemy kind of came back into popular consciousness, really post young, it it seems like. And, um, um, you know, people usually focus on alchemy as metaphor for personal transformation, whether you view that more psychological or more spiritual. Um, But what you're talking about is like both simultaneously because there is that personal transformation, but in your exploration of alchemy, you're actually finding a physical philosopher's stone though, that actually, that, that then accomplishes that work. Yeah. It's like a synthesis. You're, You're always seeing that, with the with the stone the alchemist is perfected somehow there's this both are happening at the same time and for young this was happening by way of projection they were achieving perfection or at least a state of psychological uh, unity through the achievement of this perfected state of matter that's perfectly possible i mean that's set and setting that's how ritual works yeah yeah i'm not that, that's not in question but I really feel like this is the unifying factor that bridges that gap between laboratory alchemy and internal alchemy. Uh, in Chinese alchemy, they have two, both they talk about nadon and weidon, internal and external alchemy. And I, I find that also fascinating insofar as this substance is also endogenous. There are ways to produce it without a lab or without the drug outside. And then if you don't want to do it that way, you can also do it in the lab. It's, it's the, the ultimate uh, vas hermeticum. The inside is like the outside and the outside is like the inside. It's, it's, it's 
it's the best solution I've been able to find to the problems presented in the alchemical manuscripts. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, I want to hit this, the grand elixir. Uh, you mentioned this, uh, Disgalay, is that how you pronounce that? Desagulier. Wow, okay. <laughs> Desagulier, um, the grand elixir. So you talk about a couple of things that we kind of have to understand. To understand the, the grand elixir in the book, you talk about the cha- chaining of the golden dragon and the enjoyment of the silver lady. And what is what does all this mean? How does it relate to the main thesis of the book. Well, the, the grand elixir comes from an expose that was published in uh, a newspaper called the post boy. And it's been dismissed by Brent Harris, uh, Brent Morris, who's a, um, a fantastic researcher, but I don't agree with his readiness to dismiss it because there's too many anomalies that raise questions in other areas. Um, this is a great example. Um, so it says the, the very last question, and it's, a, it's set up in terms of questions and answers because that's how um, Masonic uh, catechisms are set up. You're asked a question, you give a specific answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last answer, question and answer consists of something like, what are the secrets of Masonry or the finest secrets of Masonry or something like that? But the answer is... Uh, knowledge of the constitution of the grand elixir and then it lists a series of other things one of them is um subduing nature which is in masonry that language shows up in subduing the passions so it has more to do with vices subduing vices um but yeah then it talks about uh, the chaining of the golden dragon and the enjoyment of the silver lady this is clearly alchemical language, but what, what they're doing is, um, Carl Jung calls it uh, an antiodromia, a tendency of a thing to become its opposite. So when we look at alchemy, um, excuse me, when we look at Indian alchemy, which has its correlations with yoga and is directly connected to yoga, um, there's this notion of the lunar god, a male moon god, Shiva, who exists in the brain. And then you have Kundalini Shakti, this solar goddess who exists at the base of the spine and the, the Muladhara chakra. And through the techniques of yoga, you coax her awake. Well, the techniques of yoga what they do is they allow the seed of Shiva to build up and it's, it's imagined as being in the brain and the uh, Sahasrara chakra, the crown chakra is imagined as being like a bowl that's through retention of orgasm and through pranayama and yogic practice, it fills with Bindu with this seed of Shiva and once it fills, it begins to drip and overflow. And this dripping is what awakens Kundalini Shakti from her slumber and makes her ascend up the Sushumna, the path along the spine, uh, to unite with her consort. 
this is the same eros gamos we see in alchemy with the the marriage of the king and the queen the red king and the white queen and um but in alchemy it's usually the king who is associated with the sun and it's the queen who is associated with the moon clear reflection of that in our modern thinking we think about a very polarized masculine feminine relationship but that wasn't so in ancient times there's in ancient deities most of the moon gods were male you see soma was a male you see sin or nanar he was a male um, several native americans have male moon gods native american tribes um but in, in our tradition, there's this clear male of sun, female moon. This is what Jung is talking about in antiodromia, a tendency of a thing to take on the characteristics of its opposite, which is par ten, it's paramount in alchemy. It's all over the place. The, the, the uh, red lion becomes white with the tears of the eagle, and the white eagle becomes red with the blood of the lion. Um, I mean, you could go on and on with the alchemical language. But um, so what we're seeing in this early Masonic expose is not only a reference to this grand elixir, um, some kind of the production of some kind of substance, but it's also directly tied in with uh, this internal form of alchemy, um, this chaining of the golden dragon and enjoyment of the silver lady is just a reversal of the roles we just saw between Shiva and Shakti, but put in an alchemical slash Masonic context. So there's the stone and then the elixir. Um, is there any other place where you find this, this red powder? Um, Kelly is the, is he the, the earliest, the earliest one in, in this manuscript that Kelly supposedly finds? No, you find, so there's hints at it, what appear to be hints at it, like uh, the famous Neoplatonic magician Apollonius of Tiana. He talks about a stone that appears to be the Philosopher's Stone. He says it's it's red and fills with the glints of the sun and talks about it uh, having a spirit inside of it. Um, and there are also other examples of similar stones at the same time. Zosimos was, I think, third century. And in and around the same time, we have um, the Chaldean Oracles, which talks about this, um, this uh, min, um, I can't pronounce it. It's uh, spelled M-N-I-R-O-U-S-I, -I, I think but it's a stone that is meant to be incinerated, to be burned. Uh, and it's directly associated with the vision of a daemon. And in her mm. commentary on it, um, uh, I'm going to butcher her name too. Dobler, I believe, is her last name. It's uh, Tanishanu Dobler, I think is the how you pronounce it. But she points out that she says, you know, this is really weird strange language to burn a stone stones don't burn she says well, no so we probably should be looking at fumigation uh, being a fumigation going on um and she specifically notes that it would have to do with uh, letting out vapors and smells and um, that makes sense all of a sudden 
and there's a similar stone that shows up in the um, Orphic uh, lapidary that's called Nebrates or Nebrates, Nebra, Nebra, Nebrites. I, again, I'm butchering this, but it's N E B R I T E S. Um, and it's translated as jet stone, but uh, again, meant to be incinerated, and its incineration is directly associated with epileptic fits. So there are more than just the philosopher's stone going on at this time. Um, and it makes sense because this is right when alchemy was happening. And uh, there's a famous alchemist named Cleopatra who's credited with uh, the invention of the Alembic. But that's just one example of alchemical technologies that would have been available at the time to allow them to arrive at a resinous stone alkaloid extract. Um, so you see this ancient tradition uh, really continuing on in some form all the way into the Rosicrucians and uh, into America and uh, into the birth of practical occultism and theosophy. It shows up. So when the, the Theosophical Society is a great example. When they form, they form to be a continuation of Cagliostro by name, what Cagliostro was doing. Um, and at the first meeting when they formed, they had intended to be a practical magic order. And George Felt, who was uh, the first uh, pres president or vice president of the Theosophical Society, he was to show people how this was possible. He had this way of demonstrating practical magic. Well, what he did was burn some kind of substance that caused everyone in the room to see theriantrope type figures that Henry Steele Alcott later compared to the figures in Francis Barrett's The Magus. Those figures are goetic demons. So he burned some substance that made them all hallucinate this kind of stuff. Now, if that was the only isolated incident, that'd be one thing. But in his, um, it's in his uh, published diaries, Alcott talks about how two of these theosophical masters, hidden masters, came and visited him and that they lit up cigars and handed him a cigar and that he lit his cigar and that the room went away and all of a sudden it was replaced by alien landscapes and filled with monsters <laughs> that he again described as looking like the entities in francis barrett's magus and he says that they produced uh, he found himself in a geometric cube and that they produced flowers raining from the sky and that it's and then rain showers and that he noticed that their cigars weren't wet, but his was. <laughs> Smoking in wet blunts, man. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. Why is his cigar wet? You know, he thinks it's because it's gotten rained on, but in an intoxicated state, in that state, you wouldn't really have that kind of continuous thought pattern. If it, I don't know what the substance was, but it's clear they dr slipped him a Mickey of some sort. They mm -hmm. drugged him. And I, I suspect it's the same substance felt was burning uh, as an instance to cause visions for everyone. And yeah, we get on into um, 
into the 1920s with what's called the uh, the Fulcanelli affair. Um, Fulcanelli didn't actually exist. He was fabricated by a guy named Jean Julian Champagne using an unpublished manuscript by uh, Rene Schwaller de Lubix, who was, uh, he wrote the famous um, giant Egyptian temple of man studies. Uh, but uh, he had done this study on alchemical symbolism in cathedrals. He gave it to Champagne to, to edit for publication. Champagne says, you can't publish this. This reveals way too many secrets. <laughs> well, he then proceeds to embellish it extensively and publish it himself as Falconelli. And this caused a riv rivet between them for a while. Um, but the, the, the clincher is that Champagne was in a secret society by a pharmacist named Alexander Ruhier, who an entire like four to six years before the publication of the Falconelli manuscript had been published, not only publishing on the effects of DMT and uh, LSA and coca, but he had been growing peyote and making his own peyote tinctures, which he was sending out by mail order. Um, so completely infatuated with psychedelics, but, but for him in his papers, he talks about them as being, um, he calls it a paleo divinatory pharmacy saying that these were tools to cause clairvoyance and make one, uh, psychic, give you psychic abilities. So the circles that uh, Champagne was running in. They were members of this secret society called uh, the Grand Lunaire. Um, and we don't know much about this secret society, but we know it involving Champagne and Ruhier, it mostly likely involved the use of peyote and probably DMT in a ceremonial ritual context. So, so yeah, this, uh, it didn't just go away, uh, you know, it didn't just die out. There's, there's use of, of DMT. I mean, all through the history of Western esotericism, um, I, everyone, you know, it's popular to imagine that, that it's limited to ayahuasca, that there was no other um, use of it outside of ayahuasca, Yopo, you know, the more obvious, um, dmt products or brews or whatnot but uh, but no that's not true do you think at any point that it th was there any point that it was lost um or is there like a break i mean do you or do you think that someone somewhere was continuing this tradition yeah um, and to add to that modern times yeah to add to that also too like what i'm curious about is whether or not, you know, they're borrowing from, like, way older traditions and, like, ancient... Because, like, if, quote-unquote, non-modern peoples um, use entheogens regularly in their religious ceremonies, then obviously at some point in the European prehistory, they were using those as well. So it's like, you know, are they drawing somehow drawing from those older traditions or 
Like, you know, or is there a, is there a rediscovery? There, there are acacia beers referenced in Egypt. There's a story called um, A Tale of Two Brothers. It's also called um, Anpu and Bata. That's the names of the two brothers. But it discusses how um, it's basically a version of Osiris and, and Apophis, of Osiris and Typhon and their battle. But at one point, the, the heart of one of the brothers gets placed in an acacia tree. And then it's harvested and they make a beer out of it and drink it. Um, so there's evidence of that kind what looks like evidence of that kind of thing going on. But, um, but in, as far as breaks in, in my book, in the new book, I, I, I pretty much am able to show a continuous line of transmission from Ashmole on up to Falconelli to the Falconelli affair. Um, of course, we can't prove what Dee and Kelly were doing. They never mention Acacia. Kelly having found the powder in a grave, if that's really where he found it, wouldn't have known that it was Acacia. He wouldn't have known where it came from. So we can't prove that that's what, what was going on with them, but we're 99.9% certain that Ashmole identified that substance as the acacia neopo he encountered in Christopher Columbus's um, records whenever they were working out uh, um, um, cartography. The, the Royal Society was at one point making maps. Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not valid maps, but uh, updated, true no. to... Uh, realistic maps so right um, columbus's um, records were that's why they were in possession of them so i definitely think that that's what ashmole interpreted that red substance to be to be the same cinnamon colored powder that columbus saw uh so that kind of was as you're saying that i'm kind of wondering was this something that for in d and kelly's time could have been brought over from the new world it could have been you know he uh whenever all of this stuff started and they started their visions, his first mirror and uh, Jamie Paul Lamb and I were just talking about this. He's going on vacation to um, down through Mexico. Uh, the, the, the mirror that he got was an Aztec black mirror, the same mirrors that they were taking mushrooms and staring into. So um, Dee's mirror was from the Americas. That's very interesting. Do you think, I mean, if this mm -hmm. got into like theosophy and some of the other occult movements prior to that, do you think that this became widely known in esoteric Freemasonry around the you know, turn of the, the century or, or late 19th century? I mean, Masonry as a phenomenon is widely known, but it's hard to say widely known Masonic stuff because by nature it's secretive. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, it might have been widely known among those members. That's what I mean. Do you, do you speculate that it that it was widely known at a certain time? I don't time know. No, I don't. I don't speculate that. I I because okay. I don't know. Um, I yeah. it could if it could very well have been something that was reserved for specific members, or it right. could have been something that was. Uh, In contrast to just having like a few alchemists here and there who were keepers of the secret do you think finally it, when the acacia was entered into freemasonry do you think that it was 
like propagated and it, there was just a network of people. If it had have been, I don't think Cagliostro would have thought his work was so important or so okay. different. Um, I think, you know, he was trying to turn out as many people as he could. He went to different lodges and told them, burn your minutes, you know, get rid of all your rituals, start doing my stuff. This is the right way. And in his ritual, he even says, you know, the, the sprig of acacia that was given to you in ordinary masonry, he says the word ordinary masonry, you know, he says that this stuff that you're drinking is nothing other than that sprig of acacia. So it's like he's he sees himself as cluing them into something that mm -hmm. wasn't clear. So no, right. I don't think it was widespread. I think that uh, if it was being done in a lodge prior to Melisino and Cagliostro's use, it would have been something hush hush right. or not done at all, and then kind of hipped to later, like hey, you know, FYI. But we don't know, so right. I, I'm I'm reluctant to uh, to speculate too far. Ashmole, we talked we've talked about Ashmole. He appointed as rector of a parish in I think in Litchfield, uh, a famous theosopher who was a follower of Johann Gichtel, who himself was a follower of uh, Jacob Burma. Um, John Pordage was appointed by Ashmole himself as rector of this parish. Well, shortly thereafter, Pordage and his wife start experiencing, not just experiencing visions, they're experiencing manic visions um, to the point that they are seeing demons coming out of the bricks in their chimneys. And they're so panicked by this that they've both gotten hammers and they're outside chipping away at their house, beating their chimney. You know, I can't imagine how their neighbors would have perceived this if they had neighbors, but we're talking about two people that see demons in their bricks and are just beating the shit out of their house. So the, the way the theosophers after this episode talk about it is that, you know, he was experiencing the negative. You have to go through the demon side of existence before you get to the angelic visions. I think that's nonsense. That's just an attempt to explain something that didn't make sense to them. The, reading the episode, it reads like nothing so much as a drug trip. And the fact that Ashmole appointed them, you know, I don't know if Ashmole was drugging them with the stuff, testing it to see what would happen. Uh, when I was first investigating, I thought, are they poisoned with ergot? Is this an example of ergot poisoning? And I did find out that in the same year in Saxony, Germany, there was an outbreak of ergot. And we know that the theosophers in Germany and England were in communication, you know, could that have happened that way? But if it, if it was that, we would have most likely seen, you know, one of them would have, one of their kids probably would have died or loss of digit, gangrene, some of the other symptoms that go along with ergot poisoning. So I'm thinking it can't be ergot poisoning. And so when I start really looking into Pordage more deeply, I find out that he is completely preoccupied with something he calls the red tincture of paradise. Mm -hmm. And all theosophers after him interpret this as um, a vision of Sophia, that the tincture is, Sophia comes into your life and tinctures your life. She colors it and changes it. I don't think that's the case. And we really, we know that's not the case because uh, Cagliostro, who, like we said, was giving his candidates DMT, he had a 
extended retreat that he did for his more advanced adepti, where he would give them higher and higher doses of this stone. And after three days, it says that uh, you'll have to change the bed linens because they will have shit the bed. They will have puked on themselves. He's telling you that they will have purged. La Purga Mm -hmm. is actually one of the names for ayahuasca, the purge. Right. So after this purge experience, then they start experiencing their hair falling out, their nails fall out, their skin turns black, their teeth fall out. This is consistent with what's known as shamanic dismemberment. What happens with tryptamine experience and shamanic initiation scenarios where you experience your body coming apart and then either being put back together or being reborn as something new. This is very very common um, language. And that's what we're seeing with Cagliostro. Well, the Afrata community were followers of John Pordage, who John Pordage... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Was connected with Jane Lead of the Philadelphian Society, and it was these th- these German post gictal theosophers had traveled through, you know, m- met the lead Jane Lead and their group, and went on to America and started what is now considered the first Rosicrucian society. But it, they weren't really Rosicrucian; they were theosophers. But it was uh, eventually called the Ephrata Community, and this was in Pennsylvania. And eventually this guy shows up who is a practicing alchemist. Um, His last name is Martin. And um, he sets up an alchemy lab and he's a follower of Michael Sendivogius, which is important because Sendivogius um, was known to have been in contact with Kelly. He sought them out and actually rented a house next to him so he could learn secrets from Kelly. So this guy who's obsessed with Sendivogius sets up this alchemical laboratory And he has in his possession the document that Cagliostro had, this retreat document. And somehow it ends up in the hands of this man named Regnier. Regnier isn't a member of the Ephrata. He wants to be. He's been hanging out with them. He thinks they're cool. Somehow he's found out about this ritual. So he's like, well, I want to do it. Every one of them tell him, no, you don't do You can't do that. You're not ready to do that. So he says, screw y'all. I'm going to do it anyway. So he goes out in the woods, he builds him a little hut and he starts doing the ritual and starts up in the dose every day. He ends up absolutely losing his mind. They have to chain this man up in a basement and they whip him every day to try and get his senses back. Completely loses his mind. And uh, in his own account, he says that, you know, when he finally got his senses back, he, he could be okay and know where he was but if, any, if anything ever got crazy around him, he would slip back into that state, almost like have a flashback. And I think this is a clear indication of what we would now call psychedelic-induced PTSD. But, uh, yeah, absolutely lost his shit. And if there was any question about the 
the entheogenic nature of these rituals and this substance, this red tincture, uh, this should this kind of stuff should lay it to rest. You don't have people losing their minds and having to be chained up um, for weeks at a time from meditating in the countryside. It makes total sense. And that was kind of where I wanted to, what I wanted to ask you was in some of this, like, even if it's not in the book or just things that you, when you were looking at all this, what were some of the experiences that these people had? Like what was, you know, what, what were some like you just kind of described what was going on physically with that guy, but is there any like writings about what he might've seen or just like, is there, are there any other writings about what uh, these people were experiencing um, when they were take when they were doing this? I'll read you a section from poor Dodge's experience yeah and a lot of it is really coached in like this real poetic language too it's kind of um mm-hmm. i guess was it what eight seventeenth 17th and 18th century kind of poetic language so here we go. this is a uh, poor dodge um his journal he says in august 1649 there appeared in my bedchamber about the middle of the night a spirit in the shape of everard with wearing his apparel, band, cuffs, hat, etc., who after the sudden drawing of the bed curtains seemed to walk once through the chamber very easily and so disappeared. That very night there was another appearance of one in the form of a giant with a great sword in his hand, without a scabbard, which he seemed to flourish against me, having the figurative similitude of a great tree lying by him. After this had continued the space of a half an hour, it vanished, and there succeeded a third appearance, which was very terrible, being in the shape of a great dragon, which seemed to take up most of the part of a large room, appearing with great teeth and open jaws, when she oft ejected fire against me, which came with such a magical influence that it almost took the breath right out of my body, making me fall to the ground. Now, you must know that these three were dreadful apparitions apparitions and very terrible to the sensitive nature and might have caused a great distemper to it had I not been supported in an extraordinary way by the ministrations of the holy angels. So he's seeing angels, demons, you know, he is uh, all over the place. Yeah. I mean, amazing, amazing stuff. (laughs) And the, the negative experiences also, they, they Uh have that, um, alchemical parallel in the negrito in the disillusion before the coagulation um so all these great example great uh yeah analogy to point out that the consistency in the models yeah and so like there's i mean there's a lot of things in in alchemy that you can you can see as um having to do with the psychedelic experience itself and psychedelic experiences have stages and uh, they, they, they definitely transform consciousness and the spirit, wherever uh, you want to call it. But so, yeah, there's just so many multiple levels of correlation. Yeah. Great point. Um, I really want to get into some nitty gritty stuff as far as um, I guess the, some of the most um, spectacular elements are these ideas of like contacting other intelligences and um, 
you know, a lot of people are really concerned about this and, and um, think it's the reason why people shouldn't do this. And then you have other people who have the, you know, exact opposite uh, disposition. But what are your what are your personal thoughts on whether there actually are intelligences that we are contacting or are these just uh, some kind of psychological mechanism or some kind of combination of the two, I guess? Well, as far as other intelligences, um, you know, when you're in the moment experiencing it, there's no question. Uh, the, the experience is so reified um, that it takes a large amount of reality testing to get out of it when you've entered that stage, what uh, that would constitute what um, James David Lewis Williams called the third stage of trance, when you're com- completely immersed in the experience. And most of the time, don't remember you've taken a drug. Uh, in those moments, there's no more questioning the reality of it than we're questioning the reality of us talking to one another here. I mean, it's happening. Um, and McKenna makes that point that uh, the terrifying reality of it, that if you were just watching it displayed on the wall, uh, a display, even if you knew it was a drug, it doesn't come with that terrifying reality of it, that the absolute sense of panic that comes along with the fact that you're not looking at something, but something appears to be looking at you. And it's a wholly different uh, kind of a dynamic, but whether or not they're real, I don't think we have enough information to say, and uh, I would just be speculating, but I did recently write a paper on uh, the correlation between James David Lewis Williams' three stages of trance model and the three stages of reality in the cosmos of Neoplatonism. Now, that being said, uh, without going into too much detail, the first stage of his trance model is constituted by geometric patterns, what are called form constants. The first stage in the cosmos in this Neoplatonic model is the noetic realm, which is populated with what's called the forms, the platonic forms, which again have been repeatedly compared to geometry, namely to Plato's solids, um, being the archetypes that inform our experience here. So I do suspect that we might be experiencing an aspect of reality that uh, is real and maybe not always perceptible, but um, as far as the entities, you know, you really back me in the corner trying to get me to answer that because <laughs> I, I can just speculate. We can't, we don't have enough information to answer it. Yeah. It's a, it, it is ultimately a mystery. Well, I mean, as far as like the, that goes i mean for me i mean i i definitely believe we're contacting something but that's just that's just my own personal opinion i don't have any like kind of you know i guess objective reasoning behind it but um a lot of anecdotal evidence but it's just something that we can't 
No. So it's one of those things we're right back in the realm of, we have to accept it on faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the only thing we can really do is experiment and uh, repeat the experiment. Well, if, if psychedelics had anything to do with the de- development of um, mankind, as we know it now, you know, like going back to the stoned ape theory and things like that, then um, if these psychedelics put us in touch with, something else then these uh these other beings might might have had a large place in our development as well like as our as the angels are in different traditions and other yeah. beings are the star people or whatever you want to call them so well this whole graham hancock's idea that people were actually guided to buy the plants themselves to make you know ayahuasca I don't know if that's necessarily his idea, like originally, but I've heard this this type of thing. That's their their own claim. A lot right, of those right. groups own claim that uh, I believe the the plants themselves announced their use to the the natives. And uh, Jeremy Norby um, he investigates that in his book, The Cosmic Serpent. But uh, but yeah, they claim that the plants talk to them themselves them to them and that kind of stuff is far outside of the realm of you're entering magical territory that just can't be explained and Mm -hmm. i myself believe you know i'm a believer i believe in an absolute reality Uh, it's something that i can't prove but i um I have deep suspicions and all of the evidence points towards the existence of something in my own personal experience and through the testimony of countless others, uh, you know, the, the notion of messengers is, uh, mm-hmm. is, is undeniable. You can't just explain it, to explain it away, but, um, but to point to be able to point my finger at it and say what it is isn't, I just feel like uh, I'm depriving myself of the mystery of it, which I think where the real magic is, uh, being able to sort of walk that tightrope and say, I can't know this, and that's okay because that's what's fun about it, you know, the, the beauty of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, and psychedelics have really... Um, for people who who aren't in an organized religious system or aren't traditionally spiritual uh, in our era, psychedelics have really uh, gave so many of those people like a, a certainty of a spiritual reality who probably wouldn't have otherwise or who left traditional spiritual paths. And mm-hmm. yeah, I I uh, I think that they're efficient because they really work on hard cases and I would call myself a hard case, you know, before I had successful psychedelic experiences, nothing worked for me. You know, I I had been doing psychedelics since I was a, a kid, but it wasn't until I got a little bit older and trying, you know, had an intention of achieving something spiritual that I started having those kinds of experiences, but it, it wasn't coming from the meditation. It wasn't coming from the yoga. It wasn't coming from any of that stuff. And, uh, 
but after psychedelics, it, it was almost like, I hate to just say it, it gave me a breakthrough where it made those experiences easier, but it's almost like it gave me a frame of reference so that I could recognize when I was having a transcendent experience. Whereas before, I think it goes right past you. I think, I think many people, normal people who don't try to say normal, but people who don't do psychedelics, I think have psychedelic experiences more than they're aware of. They just don't have a frame of reference where they can say, you know, where you can point your finger and say, I was in the deep end and this is kind of like that. Uh, and it did that for me so that um, when I went back and started working with things like pranayama, I, I noticed when I was getting results, whereas before I might've interpreted that as anxiety or something like that. It's all very interesting stuff. My final question would be, and I think that, you know, the overall Freemasonic community has seemed to have embraced these ideas. Um, I think that it seemed, would seem kind of controversial, I guess, to the older guard, but it seems like they have really um, accepted these ideas and, and your research. How has that journey kind of been for you? Well, at first, when I first went down this path, I, I questioned whether I would even publish because uh, in the beginning, I was certain I would be expelled or <laughs> something. I did, you know, something terrible was going to happen. Mm -hmm. But uh, and I did get some pretty nasty responses, um, emails and messages from people. But I think most of that was fueled by. Um, a suspicion they had they didn't really know what I was saying and I think it was a suspicion that I was encouraging this or saying this is how it should be done when really all I'm doing is is saying this is what was taking place at a certain time uh, and I think that after that kind of got into the heads of some of the older guard they softened up a little bit um, and I, I've I mean, I haven't gotten a nasty, a nasty message or anything in a while. So, and a lot of that, I think, too, has to do with it's just in the consciousness right now. You know, I never thought something like this would happen with psychedelics being decriminalized. I, I've always looked at them as being sacred, and I kind of saw their illegality as almost. Um, the taboo is protecting that sanctity. I, I just sort of had accepted that that's why they're illegal, that they cannot possibly be legal. Um, but here they are being decriminalized and, and it raises even more questions. Uh, I, you know, I absolutely think they should be uh, legal, but I wonder where it's going as far as our just global consciousness. Where are we as a, uh, as a nation, as a, a race, you know, or where will we be going once people start eating these substances on a large mass scale? I mean, like yeah. I said, I'm all for them being legal, but I know how powerful they are firsthand. Well, this kind of brings up the question of like, um, this was a, this was a secret for so long in these circles 
and now the, the secret is out, the cat is out of the bag. I mean, that's an interesting thing because I've always, what you're saying, because of all, you know, when you talk to people that are really into um, these things, they're always looking at it as very positive. And it kind of sounds like you've got a kind of like a mixed bag that, that there could be some negative aspects to this too. So maybe it was a good thing that like this was something that very few people did that they could really understand it. And I mean, I've heard some things like, you know, that young people shouldn't be doing it, um, that it should be something that's for older people, which is interesting. Um, so, you know, could this be a bad thing if like, you know, too many people are doing, doing these drugs? I mean, I don't, I don't think it could be bad um, in a natural sense but i think it could be societal sense um in the long run i think it could only be good for society in my case um it promoted positive values and positive morals but uh but that's me um, right and, uh, alan he's recently done some research on you know how psychedelics can can land you in the opposite camp. Um, Stanislav Grof, he talks about psychedelics being, um, it's the word he, the phrase he uses, non-specific amplifiers, I think is the phrase. Um, meaning that, sure, if you're in a set and setting and have been prepared uh, for a peaceful, loving type experience, that that might be what comes about. But, um, it's not specifically going to amplify for someone else. It might ampl amplify a completely different uh, part of their site. Good example of this is uh, the tribe that uses ayahuasca in Brazil um, before they go to battle, before they go to war. I can't possibly imagine fighting on ayahuasca or any psychedelic. <laughs> yeah. that, that is a nightmare to me. But for them, and I'm not saying that it's wrong. It's but it, we we have to keep it within their cultural context. But for them, it absolutely says something about war and fighting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not just like we can say that psychedelics are going to make everything peaceful and lovey. And uh, I mean, I think if that was the case, we wouldn't have ended up with people like Bobby Bosolier and mm -hmm. Charles Manson. You, you know. Psychedelics can go any direction. I think that's one of the messages that uh, Jim Morrison had. You know, he was surrounded by the peace and love folks, and you know, of course, he wasn't up screaming bloody murder, but he was certainly pointing out the 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 darker, more chthonic sort of Lovecraftian aspects of these experiences. Uh, old gods you know that kind of lovecraftian stuff did not make sense to me until i had a good you know 10 10 grams of mushroom in me and then all of a sudden <laughs> that kind of stuff becomes very uh not only plausible but obvious you know right interesting i did want to make a little note here that uh i remember i think it was it might've been a couple years ago. Let me see. I, I did find the blog actually knows from 2018, uh, that skeptic guy, Jason Colavito got a hold of your book and like did this hit piece on you. 
And I just thought it was so ironic because, like, I mean, he's, like, arguing that you shouldn't be um, speculative with speculative Freemasonry. I mean, what's... I just, I did not get it all. I thought it was funny. I remember, uh, I think you posted on Facebook or something when that happened. But um, did you have a back and forth with him at all? Yeah, he admitted he didn't read my book, which I thought, how, <laughs> how are you going to write a review? He didn't actually read the thing. But, uh, uh, but yeah, and again, I would argue I'm not being speculative. I, I am careful to not speculate, you know, if... I'm pointing my finger at uh, specific cases of drug use, drug discussion, drug investigation. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm very careful not to speculate, but, but yeah, he, uh, I don't, and to be honest, I have no idea who he is. Uh, so I'm not, he's just a, he's just a naysayer. Just, you yeah, know, every, everyone in the points, field, everyone in every aspect of the paranormal gets it, I think. Yeah, the, yeah, they do. It's just, yeah. I just really did not understand his bone to pick in that situation. Is he, is he a Mason? I no, really doubt it. No, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't think he is, but he goes after, um, Scott Walter a lot because, and Scott Walter is a Mason. So maybe that's the association that he was making. The preoccupation with the Templar treasure, so he just felt like I was stepping on his toes. Yeah, probably. It's <laughs> probably something like that. It's probably that you know the suspicion that the treasure was never anything like treasure and had something more to do like this, which I never make that kind of claim. But uh... PD, this has been extremely fascinating. We've enjoyed having you on again, um, and we haven't even scratched the surface. I mean, this is a really short book, but like we've barely scratched the surface of what's in it. So, uh, can you tell everybody where they can find this book? Um, and also where, you know, they can find like what your other writings and, um, and like in your, and your web presence. Yeah. Um, I, uh, am in between web pages right now. We're about to make a new, um, website. Um, but the book, my first book can be got, gotten through Amazon, through Barnes and Noble. Um, it's also available through the publisher, uh, which is a laudable pursuit press. Uh, the new book, uh, Angels in Vermilion, will also be available Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, and the, the publisher as well through their website, which is Tria Prima. And, um, and yeah, just uh, I do have an alchemically stoned presence on Facebook kind of keep up with uh, public speaking and uh, newly published articles and things like that. So uh, yeah, that's probably the best place to keep up with me. Excellent. And we have a special announcement. PD Newman will be joining us yes. for the 2021 strange realities conference. And uh, so hopefully you'll, you'll get Looking to forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. October 15th, 16th and 17th. I think uh, PD, I think you will be actually, uh, joining us in Nashville, so we're looking forward. We're looking forward to hosting you here. So oh, yeah. Come get alchemically stoned in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe literally. Um, all right, guys. Uh, st- we're going to close out this section, but guys, stay tuned. We're going to have a special announcement about the Strange Realities Conference yet again. So we'll be right back. 
All right, guys, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. That was an excellent interview with uh, P.D. Newman uh, with about his book, Angels in the Vermilion, about uh, DMT in, uh, and the Philosopher's Stone and all kinds of interesting uh, material. Um, a lot of that stuff, man, I'll be honest with you, just kind of goes over my head. So you are way more equipped on the understanding a lot of that than I am. So... Uh, but it was an interesting, an interesting interview, nonetheless. Yeah, I think that it's a really good synthesis, like I mentioned when we were talking with him, a good synthesis of understanding alchemy as uh, based on personal transformation and a operative uh, physical thing going on that actually then enables that personal transformation. So it's it's a it's a interesting way of looking at it um and yeah i mean he's really like at the forefront of solving some of the biggest historical mysteries about mm -hmm. psychedelics and the role of psychedelics in the western esoteric tradition yeah it's fantastic stuff and i really think that um he's really on to something um in this book and also in his previous book alchemically stoned um it seems to be that yeah these these people had this kind of like guarded secret of this um of using these drugs in the past and and i really liked what he said about um it being a form of a sacrament mm -hmm. as well so i'm pretty uh pretty impressed by that so um we have a special announcement on top of the special announcement that we made earlier in the, in the show. We want to talk about uh, strange realities conference and we're going to beat that like a dead horse all the way until October. So get used to hearing about it because we really want you guys to either come to Nashville or be in uh, sitting in the comfort of your home and watching the strange realities conference that is going to be broadcast from SIR Nashville, which is where we did it back in 2019. And you'll understand why we're so excited when we reveal the people who will be speaking there, which is about to take place right now. Yes. So uh, we are going to talk about the, the lineup that we have for the Strange Realities 2021 conference. There's going to be some people that have been there uh, since the beginning and some new people as well. Now, some of these people are going to be on site and some of them are going to be just, uh, broadcasting from their homes. Uh, we don't know, uh, at the moment, um, who is all going to be there. Uh, but, uh, we do know some for sure. So, uh, I will talk about who may possibly be there and uh, on site for people to to meet and also um who may not be so uh starting out tim banal is going to be joining us as always the, the uh the great tim banal you know there's there's uh there, what does he say there's no comparison um you know we're gonna have him there um he's talked about the flat earth material in the last two conferences i believe he's going to talk about uh something else this year and he's kind of keeping me in suspense on what that's going to be he is going to be uh even though he's going to be coming from boston we're going to be bringing him in uh he's ready to come down to nashville and have a good time with us 
So Tim and all will be there. There will be no rules and no comparison. No rules and no comparison. Yes. Uh, great banal of America. Uh, Nathan Isaac uh, from the Penny Royal podcast will also be joining us. Um, I'm sure he'll be dropping some uh, some knowledge on us. In uh, Nashville, fucking Tennessee. Nashville, fucking Tennessee. Yes, that's it. Uh, Brent Rains will be rejoining us. Hopefully Brent will be joining us in person as he's not too far from the Nashville area. Uh, Brent, of course, is a classic um, UFO researcher and uh, really does his homework on it. Dr. Future will be joining us. Um, I'm hoping he will be able to come out. Pretty sure he will. Most of everybody's going to be probably vaccinated. So, um, Dr. Future, who's like, you know, my mentor and uh, pretty much the reason why I do this show. Uh, P.D. Newman, who we just heard in this episode, he will also be coming out. Looks like he will be coming to Nashville. Uh, I think that that is a, pretty much a surety. Uh, Ren Collier who is back with us. Um, Ren will probably be helping us out with some technical things as well. Uh, Ren is going to try to come to Nashville, I believe. Um, we're, we're talking about it. Yeah, a lot of um, us is still up in the air right now. A lot now. of us still up in the air. Steve Stockton, uh, one of my favorite storytellers, he, like I've always said, could read the phone book, and I would be absolutely engrossed. Uh, of course, he's in Portland, Oregon. Don't know if he will be coming out, but definitely he will be doing his own like online presentation. Aaron Gullius will also be coming back from last year's conference as well. You're the host of the Saucer Live podcast, uh, author, and uh, I don't know if he's going to be there on, in person or not, but th that could be a possibility. Amy Petula will be joining us. The uh, She's the head of the Chattanooga Ghost Tours, and she wrote the book about the uh, Corpsewood Manor uh, murders that we had in, we did back in January. She will uh, she will also be joining us, not sure if in person or not. Uh, Jose Herrera, who we had on just, uh, I think the beginning of this year, or was it the end of last year? Uh, he will possibly be joining us in person. Yeah, hopefully. I think he's in North Carolina. Yes, yes. Uh, Chris Ernst will uh, possibly be joining us in person as well. Uh, we may be possibly showing The Hill in the Hole one of those nights and maybe have Chris talk about it. Um, we will see exactly what we're going to do on that. Uh, Recluse, a, also known as Stephen Snyder, uh, he's, I believe he's going to come down from... Uh, from West Virginia. So you guys, if you're coming, you will get to meet the mysterious recluse. And Maybe uh, you shouldn't tell him that. Adam. We don't want any secret agents showing yeah, up. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. You, you'll get to meet a giant spider. Kiki Dombrowski. Uh, she will be coming back up to the Nashville area from Georgia. Uh, she will be there. David Metcalf. We're trying to convince him to come. Hopefully he does. Timothy Renner. He's going to be coming back. Um, hopefully that he and, uh, will be coming, driving down here with Soraya Askath from where did the road go? Our good friend Soraya. And he is going to be, he says he's going to be there 
and really a rare in person appearance. Yeah, I'm gonna try to get Soraya to do uh, see if he can wants to do like radio like interviews because obviously we're not gonna do that in Spirit Normal because we're you know we're doing the conference so uh, maybe Soraya could uh, can interview people there as well. Michael Hughes will be part of the conference. Don't know if he will be in person, but he will uh, definitely be uh, giving a presentation online for sure. Um, Joshua Cutchin will also be there. Uh, looking forward to that. And we've got added Dr. Stephen Finley, who is going to be, uh, we don't know what his presentation is going to be or whether he's going to be in Nashville, but uh, definitely whatever it is is going to be interesting. He is a professor of religion. Uh, we did a show with him last summer about uh, the Nation of Islam and the wheel uh, UFO that Louis Farrakhan encountered. And Heather Mosier will be also joining us. She will be, uh, she is probably joining us here in Nashville, actually, uh, coming down from Ohio. She is the main researcher for the Small Town Monsters, uh, Seth Breed Loves films as well. And last but definitely not least, the Grandmaster himself, Alan fucking Greenfield will will be there as well. I'm pretty sure that uh, I have talked to Alan and he really wants to come to Nashville. Yes. And uh, we don't know. There, there may be some rituals involved. We don't know exactly what... what... Yes. All right. Uh, that is the lineup, guys. Uh, we hope that uh, you guys are interested in w- at least one or two, if not all, of the people that we have that we have going to be at Strange Realities Conference 2021. Again, that is October 15th through the 17th here in Nashville, Tennessee, and also uh, streaming online for those of you that want to stay home. And those prices are $70 for in-person in Nashville and $30 in, uh, for online. Now, the, uh, the way that it is listed, it is listed as an online conference on Eventbrite. But just know that if you are paying the $70, that is for in-person. But you will also receive a link to stream the conference to whatever we're going to be streaming it to. And we'll probably have the streams available after uh, post-conference as well so that you can uh, catch up on anything you missed out. And that will probably be on there for a while, like we did this year with the uh, Strange Realities 2020. Yep. And uh, for those of you that that came to uh, were a part of Strange Realities 2020, first of all, thank you. Uh, that is still up there. If you guys want to go back and revisit that. So, yeah. All right. I, I think that's it. I think I covered everybody. That's a lot of speakers over three days. You guys are definitely going to get your money's worth out of this. Um, just to be able to, um, you know, we're really hopeful about everyone getting inoculated and things getting back somewhat to normalcy. Um, just to be able to rekindle some of the, the spirit of the 2019 first strange realities conference that, uh, was, that was physical in person and the type of connections you get to make the type of, uh, information that you get to, you know, get from, from different people. And, uh, those hallway conversations, it's just, um, 
I really can't wait to get back to some of that. And this having, you know, if even half of these people are there in person, uh, it's going to be a really great time. So I encourage if you can come out, um, it's going to be a, a real great time in at the uh, physical conference. Yes. I think that's it guys. We want to see you either in Nashville or online and um, join us next week, guys. Uh, Professor Wham is going to be coming back and we're going to close out the show. Join us next week on Conspiranormal. Please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.